February 4th, 2021. We made it to February, Overtimers. If this is your first time to the party, my name is David Oliver, and this is my podcast, Overtime with Oliver. Had fun sitting down with St. Louis veteran sportscaster Ron Jacober. Talked a lot about firsts in this one. First one to do long story vignettes. First one to take live call-ins with a manager. We had fun, and I think you're going to enjoy it in a few. Nolan Oronato, come on down. Just bring those 30-plus home runs right over here, buddy. St. Louis's first Max vaccine is now open at Flow Valley in Ferguson. They estimate 500 to 1,000 a day can be vaccinated. That seems like a pretty big swing to me. Check back next Thursday on this one. Looks like charter schools are about to get $17 million more this year out of public schools funding. Francis Howell School District is 68 teachers down from last year. Others are getting a 20% pay cut. That's the other shoe you hear dropping. Tom Brady goes for number 7 out of 10 this Sunday. Is it rooting for him if you don't root against him? Three things you should if you have not. The Americans is back on Prime. If you missed it the first time, I highly recommend you don't make that mistake again. Maybe top five in my top five. Real-life couple Carrie Russell and Matthew Rise are outstanding as Soviet spies living covertly in the States. Don't worry about getting into it. Episode one gets you off and running. Number two, if you've got Showtime, I am jealous. Brian Cranston's new show, Your Honor, looks great. I saw the first episode on a tease promotion. Next long weekend I got, I'm going to sign up for that free trial just to watch the rest. He's a judge whose kid hit and runs the only son of a big mob guy. Read mostly great reviews on the rest of this series. This is what I'm going to ask you. Subscribe, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Again, you can see this conversation on OT with Oliver's YouTube channel. You can also see Ron's St. Louis 7 that'll debut on Tuesday. We've got about 80 St. Louis 7s up you can go check out. And lastly, if you like this episode, you should go check out some previous conversations we've had with Art Holiday, Randy Carricker, Guy Phillips, and the like. Documenting St. Louis and having a ball. So, Ron Jacober, always the professional, Ron saw and talked a lot about important events in this town for over 40 years. Life was not without its disappointments, most notably the loss of a son to cancer, but it all led to his most crowning achievement covering the Sydney Olympics for CBS. Trying to enjoy his retirement now and waiting out COVID. Welcome to the Overtime family, Ron Jacober. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. Of course, it's been very active from day one in the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame. I was one of the founders of that, and I can explain how that works. Greg Marsek, who was the president and probably my best friend, died about uh, five months ago, I guess, something like that, suddenly. And uh, I don't know where the Hall of Fame's going now, but uh, it's been it's been fun, but it's been frustrating uh, because we've never been able to to establish a, a standalone building or, or an actual hall, you know, like we wanted to, and and uh, we had many displays at Scott Trade or whatever they're calling that place these days. Uh, it's been a lot of money on it. We had like seven big Hall of Fame displays down there. They made us take it out when they were remodeling the place. We got all that stuff in storage. But anyway, Hall of Fame was kind of a passion. Uh, uh, they talked me into joining the Knights a few years ago. I was never I was never going to. Finally said, yeah, I will. And I, I found it very interesting and and kind of rewarding uh, to work with those guys. It's a great, great bunch of guys. 
how are we enjoying retirement? Uh, I miss working without question. My wife thinks I'm crazy. Uh, I, I do miss that creative aspect of it. I do miss the camaraderie with the, you know, with, with the people that worked at the stations, but you know, it was time. They kind of retired me, to be honest with you. I was down a part time for two or three years and uh, the boss called me in and I, he's a good friend. He said, you know, Ron, uh, we need to grow some of these younger people here. <laughs> I said, you mean you could pay them half what you're paying me? He said, well, <laughs> yeah. And so I can read those tea leaves, but I do miss it. Uh, we, we have traveled a lot, but not in the last year or so because of all the problems. But uh, uh, I was very fortunate. One thing I, I could talk about is, is the travel. I was very fortunate, just briefly. It was a company in Minnesota called Holiday Vacations. And they bought uh, commercials on a number of uh, big market radio stations, including KMOX, advertising trips. And I would do the commercials. And then we would go, my wife and I would go as hosts. And uh, uh, they would send a full-time travel person with, you know, with the group. We would have between 30 and 40 people. We did Italy, Australia, Ireland. Uh, we did uh, uh, Prague. We did uh, uh, Hawaii a couple of times, Alaska a couple of times. We had 13 trips with this company over the years. And uh, we went for nothing. Oh, I say for nothing. We got a wife who does cost you some money. <laughs> always seem to buy stuff but uh no that was that was always good too but we haven't we st i stopped that some time ago because it got to be a little overwhelming because i was on every day and they always wanted me to help entertain and help out and that was part of the deal but uh it's they jam so much into these trips because they want the people to get their money's worth that it, it kind of it got tiring and so our favorite place in the u.s to go is the outer banks in north carolina and uh, we're scheduled to go there in April. I canceled it last year because of the pandemic. And we weren't going to go this year if we didn't get the shots. Well, we, I got, we got their first shot last Friday. You got the shot. You're the second person I've known who got the shot. How was your arm? I heard maybe there's some side effects with the arm. It hurts like hell for 24 hours. Okay. <laughs> Mine really hurt. It really hurt. But they said it'll only last 24 hours or so. And that was exactly right. Yeah, we, I registered my wife and I on several places, and uh, we got an email from St. Luke's Hospital last Thursday night saying, uh, you're invited to schedule an appointment tomorrow for your COVID shot, and they listed a bunch of times, and I, I picked the earliest one we could get, and we showed up. They were incredibly well organized. Uh, it, was, it was, we were in and out in 30, 35 minutes. We had to fill out a lot of paperwork. We had to do a lot of that in advance, but more when we got there. But uh, I was really impressed with how they how they handled it and how well they handled it. And the good news is they scheduled us for the second shot before we left. So was it uh, was it cold when it went in? No, I didn't feel anything except the, the little pain of the needle. No, it wasn't cold. No, I didn't feel anything. My arm got sore. Mine got sore than my wife's, but uh, after twenty four hours, it was fine. And it was sore only at the injection site, not anywhere else in the body. Now, some people have felt, I, I've read, in fact, my sister said she had it, and she felt pretty rotten the next day or two. Uh, but we didn't experience any of that. So hopefully this stuff works, you know. It did not affect your vocal cords. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, it didn't. You know, the funny part of that is 
of years ago when I had to call, I called an operator for uh, uh, assistance for a phone number. She said, here's the number, Ron. <laughs> I didn't tell her who I was, but she recognized <laughs> I get that a lot now because, uh, because after all those years behind those microphones, people do recognize you. There are people who create the voice. My guess is that you didn't have to create the voice. It was just there. Never had any training. Never had a second of training, voice training. In fact, all this is a, I'll tell this story briefly. It, it, it's an accidental career. I never had any plans to do this at all. I come from Highland, Illinois, and a small town over there. And my dad had four brothers, so a bunch of kids. I was the first one to go to college. Why do you want to go to college? You know, in those days, what you did, you graduated from high school, you got a job, you bought a car, you got married, had kids, and had a good life. But I want to go to college. So I went as a, with a, as a photography major, okay, because I love to take pictures. Well, it changed shortly after that to journalism. And I remember the chairman of the J School called me in after my freshman year and said, you know, Ron, I think you ought to go home and get a job. You're not going to make this. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if he was just trying to kick me in the backside or if he was serious or not. But when I was inducted into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame, I said, I wish H.R. Long were here tonight <laughs> to hear this, because he's the one that told me I wasn't going to make it. But anyway, it was an accidental career. Uh, I went in the Army briefly after I, went, I was one of those six-month wonders, six months of active duties and six and a half years of reserve meetings. Oh, and... Uh, I got a job in public relations at the Auto Club of Missouri at AAA. And uh, so I was editing their publication because I'm a good writer. I, I will have to brag about that. Back to Channel 5, they told me I was the best writer in the building. But anyway, I was helping with their publication, doing all kinds of stuff. And um, I actually advanced pretty fast to the assistant of the president there in charge of the, uh, of the department. And... Um, I was calling on a radio station in Belleville in the fall where we had a schools open drive safely campaign. And, the, and I, I gave the pitch to the owner. He said, you've done some radio work, haven't you? I said, well, I had a one, one hour course as a lark in college just because I had, I could take it. He said, I was like a part-time job. I said, well, when? He said, how about tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't do it that night because apparently somebody quit or they fired somebody. But I came home and talked to my wife about it. I said, well, you know, this might be kind of fun. I, I might enjoy that. So I wound up working weekends in Belleville for two years almost, spending records. I was the only one in the building, the only person in the building on, on a Saturday and Sunday. And I really, really enjoyed it. But we had two little boys at home. I was working seven days a week. I was really burning the candle at both ends. So I said, well, that was fun, but I'm going to have to stop this. Well, there's a guy named Bob Hardy. You remember? You may remember Bob Hardy, a great newsman at KMOX. And uh, he lived in Belleville. And he heard me over there. And he called me and said, Ron, we're looking for a part-time weekender at KMOX. Would you be interested? Well, that was like God calling me. So, oh, my God. Come down and do an interview. Or, or come down and do an audition. So I did. And uh, they offered me a job to work on weekends. So now I'm back to seven days a week again. But this time it's with KMOX not WIBV in Belleville. And uh, I was there for, mm, I don't know, maybe several months. And they started making noises about maybe a full-time job. And uh, meanwhile, the president of the auto club called me and said he had a high squeaky voice. said, you know, it doesn't look very good for the assistant of the president to be moonlighting on the radio on weekends. 
his name was Sam Priest. I said, Sam, you're right. I quit. Well, no, no, no. I said, no, I quit. <laughs> and I went to Cam Walks full time. Now, I was a gopher. I mean, I just did whatever they needed me to do on AM or on the FM side because they were both there at the time. But I did some sports. Jay Randolph was there doing sports. And I did some Billiken basketball games with him. And sports was really kind of my passion most of my life, but I never thought I'd go that way. So I'm there about a year and a half or two years. And, and I mean, the place, it was full of talent. You know, Jack Buck, Dan Kelly, and Dan Deardorff, and Costas came in and people like that. And I knew I wasn't getting anywhere. You know, I couldn't crack that lineup as, as a young kid on his first radio job. So I called Jay Randolph. He had gone, he had left the station to go to Channel 5. So he was a friend. I called him. I said, Jay, I'm kind of frustrated here. There's so much talent here and I'm not getting anywhere. It's a great radio station. I'm not getting anywhere. If you hear everything, let me know. He said, oh my God, we are ready to hire another sportscaster here at Channel 5 and I'd love to have you. When can you come over and cut an audition tape? I said, you tell me. He said, how about 10.30 tonight after the newscast? So I went over, they sent me down in the chair after the newscast. I'd read three or four minutes sportscast and they offered me a job the next day. So I went to Bob Hyland and gave him two weeks notice, the legendary general manager of Cam Wikes. He gave me 30 minutes to get out of the building and had somebody stand over me to make sure I didn't take the Rolodex. Because the Rolodex was big in sports. We had everybody's name and number in there. So that's how that's how all that started with Cam Oaks and Channel 5. And it, it, the story goes much longer as I was there for 17 or 18 years at Channel 5. And the station was sold. A new general manager came in, a guy named Bill, Bill Bolster. He wanted me to be a clown. Uh, I don't remember a guy named Zipper Zeppa on the television saying, well, Zip kind of clowned around a little bit. Bolster said, he's killing you. You got to do this stuff. I said, Bill, I can't do that. I'm not going to do it. I've got 16 or 17 years of blood on the floor here. I've had so many awards. Because I could give a crap about your awards, you know. And uh, anyway, we wound up parting ways. So that was how Channel 5 ended. And uh, I don't know if you want me to go on. <laughs> the fun part of my job right now is I think the over-under and how many questions I ask you is about six. So <laughs> you have fun with it. Let's touch base. You talked about your writing and you were humble, but yes, I've had multiple people on this show podcast who really talked about your writing and what I'm interested in, it's a lost art. It's all based now on how much you can get into 42 seconds. Correct me if I'm wrong. You almost were like, at least in the Midwest, the pioneer of the vignette. Would that be correct? I think that's probably accurate. Yeah, I think it's probably accurate. I, I'm the guy that started these long form uh, sports on, on Sunday night, for example, at Channel 5. I don't get credit and I don't need to get credit for it. It wasn't called Sports Extra, but they expanded the amount of time I had in sports. And that was, a, I was the first guy to do that. But I, I wrote, I did uh, an hour long special every year on Channel 5, a year end review at the end of the year. I wrote the whole script. I would spend hours and hours and hours on it, digging through old film or video. And then Jay Randolph and I would would uh, host it. Well, we, we had to record it because Jay had trouble reading my script. But, <laughs> but anyway, I would write that. I did two long form specials on Lou Brock, with Lou Brock, who became a pretty good friend. Uh, 
The one of them was 11 steps to glory. It took him 11 steps to steal second base from first base. And so I would write stuff like that. And I, uh, I did a lot of specials. I, I enjoyed it. It came natural to me. I, I don't know why it did. And it still does, as a matter of fact. It still does. So I, I enjoy writing. The other thing that you may have been one of the first to do, could be wrong, you and LaRusso used to sit down Sunday mornings. For 10 and years. He would take calls from the listeners. Right. And Ron, the little experience I have with real radio, I can only imagine what it had been like to be in between goofy callers and the real manager of a baseball club. Well, you know, it was unusual <clears throat> that he, he, he agreed to do this. Now, um, but he did almost 10 years. And he would do it even if they had an East Coast start. So it would be not too far from game time. Uh, when we started this, I said, Tony, we're going to screen the calls. No, just bring them on. I said, no, Tony, they have to be screened because they could be intoxicated. They could just be screaming. They, it could be crazy. It could be nuts. So we want legitimate phone calls, but we won't try to, to guide them to compliment you or criticize you or whatever. So he decided, he agreed to do that which was so uncharacteristic for La Russa. And Mike Shannon said one time that Tony's popularity increased dramatically in St. Louis when he started doing that Sunday morning show because he was human. He was human. But the perception that a lot of people had of Tony was what, what happened right after games. If he had to do that Fox Sports Midwest show or, or right. whatever, you know, he, Tony needed time to decompress and he would be nasty. He could be sarcastic. Ask a lot of writers, Bernie Miklas and Rick Hummel and people like that. It was He was tough to deal with there. But on Sunday morning, he was more relaxed, and he was actually almost friendly. <laughs> Maybe I put it that way to a lot of the callers. Some said, Tony, how are you? Ask me after the game. Uh, we, we'd hear that every week. You know, He'd say that one time, and then he'd have to say it anymore. But uh, he told me one time, and this was one of the biggest compliments I've ever had in terms of baseball. I respect your knowledge and I respect your passion for the game. I said, well, that's very nice. He said, Tony, we'd love to manage along with you. That's one of the beauties of, of baseball to me because it's, a, it's not that complicated of a game. We can manage along with you. Yeah, you probably do it better than I do some days, quote, unquote. But <laughs> I enjoyed that very much, uh, Tony, on Sunday mornings. But the crazy thing about that, David, he was hanging up during commercial breaks. So we'd have to call him back. The producer would have to call him back after the commercial break would be two and a half, three minutes, maybe. And he'd hang up. I don't know what, what he did in that two or three minutes, but we'd have to call him back. Was he saving minutes on his cell phone plan? I don't know why. I don't know why. I have no idea why, but he didn't want to sit there and listen to commercials on the phone, I guess. All right. So we've done a good job already talking about three things I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about your writing. I want to talk about the Tony LaRusso thing and how unique that was for the time and how now everybody does it. Here's the other thing, Ron. And again, thanks for the time. Especially in college basketball, a head coach is known for the assistants who move on from him to be great head coaches. Krzyzewski, Knight, whatever. You get an intern list of Slayton, Buck, McLaughlin, Kerber, Amzinger, and Ackerman just to rattle off a couple. Do you, wow. do you give yourself the opportunity to take personal pride in something like that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I really do. I mean, I helped him as much as I could. Tom Ackerman is 
recently been very complimentary about how I helped him. And I don't really know how I did it other than just, you know, being me and giving him any, answering any questions he might've had. But yeah, that, that's a pretty good list, isn't it? That's a pretty good list. I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm really kind of proud of that. I never, I never had a shtick, Dave. A lot of people in the business have what we call a shtick, you know, a gimmick. And I was pretty straightforward, I think. I did thousands and thousands of hours at talk shows and I, I was opinionated, but I didn't call people idiots. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have to, to put on an act. It was just like a conversation between me and those people on the phone. We would disagree a lot, and but that was fine. That's what it was all about. But, but having those guys uh, coming through me or helping any way I could is very rewarding, yeah, it is. The other thing I admired from afar so when I was in radio, man, everybody's got an ego. It's oh. not a bad thing necessarily. It just is what it is. And then for certain people who shall remain nameless, when the ball didn't drop their way or when the stars were not aligned, they would just get bitter and they would just let it dig deep inside themselves and cause them to either move on or not be <clears throat> as happy as they should be in their profession. You were well, doing this for 40 plus years, man. There's going to be a point in time where things don't go your way. Oh, absolutely. Like the time I got fired at Channel 5, you know, <laughs> that didn't go my way very well. Well, yeah, but Dave, everybody has an ego in that business. You got to, sure. there has to be some kind of ego. You have to enjoy uh, people telling you how much they love to listen to you or whatever. You have to enjoy that kind of thing. And there's no, nothing wrong with that at all. But there were some big egos. Oh, my God. I mean, guys who are just full of themselves. Uh, I, I remember a guy named Patrick Emery. You may or may not remember him. Mm -hmm. News anchor. He was, a, he was a very handsome guy. But, man, you talk about a, an ego. And I think his brain was, a well, he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. Let me put it that way. But he got through it um, because of his good looks and stuff. But, but, yeah, there's a lot of egos. Believe me, there's a lot of egos. I, I could name several. I hear on the air now these days. I won't do that, but I can feel name several. So again, on a professional level, take as long or as little as you want. You get an opportunity to do blues. Boy, is hockey a hard sport to call. But again, this is a compliment, man. Three, four years later, you are the voice of the Olympics in Sydney. And I just know a lot of people who would not have been confident and or strong enough to have a downfall, perceived anyway, right. and then just kick freaking booty with the Olympics because you stuck it through. Yeah, the, the, the Blues experience was, was interesting. I did play-by-play -play back in the days when Dan Kelly was there, and Dan Kelly got was ill and, and was dying, and I had to, I was thrust into the into the play-by-play -play job. And I don't know if I was any good or not, but I did it for, for a while. And then later on, I got the job legitimately as a play-by-play guy. And admittedly, the first 10 games of the season were not very good. I, I've always admitted that. By the mid-season, I think it was all right. By the end of the season, even Bernie Miklas thought I was doing pretty well. But the problem with that was the Blues management at the time wanted another Kelly in the booth. And for whatever reason, they wanted Dan Kelly's youngest son, Dan Kelly, Danny Kelly, and who had never done a game, never done a game at any level, any broadcast at any level. They wanted him. So, you know, I was, I was jettisoned. It was hard to take, I guess. Well, yeah, your ego takes a big blow when, it, when that happens. But uh, I got over that. The Olympic experience was, 
was incredible. Um, I never worked harder in my life than I did. I was there almost a month, but the games were like 17 or 18 days. And, and I was the, uh, the main update guy on CBS radio. I did over 500 updates on CBS radio during the games and three an hour. Uh, I think we worked 12 hour shifts, something like that. And they had to be exactly three minutes. I had to write them. Now I had, I had a help. I had a producer who helped get me sound and we had reporters in the field and that kind of thing. But the coordination of it all was really, really difficult for a while. But I had over 500 updates and, and the energy in that environment is just hard to describe. Uh, you're in this Olympic village with the greatest athletes in the world and the top media people in the world. There were, it was unbelievable. We were in a building that was the the, uh, the broadcast center in Sydney, and there were all the greatest networks in the world were in this building, and uh, it was it was pretty pretty special. It was a converted hospital. I, you know, it was a, no. I think it was a warehouse at one point. The warehouse at one point. Now we stayed in the media village, which was about five miles away, and it was an old a site of an old mental hospital, which I thought was appropriate for the media. <laughs> were 5,000 of your closest friends there living in this area. And uh, we were in this little, they built little Quonset hut kind of things and, and with four bedrooms on each side. And they were built just for those three, four weeks. And, and you're doing three, three minute reports a day. An hour. An hour, excuse me. Here's where my mind goes. Not because I was lazy, because I would not probably have been talented enough. I would have had my first 12 seconds open. I would have had my first 12 seconds close. And the only thing I would have been writing was the middle. I'm guessing you start, you went from start to finish. Yeah, that's not the way. Yeah. You had to go from start to finish. It's every day, every hour was different. You know what? It, <coughs> excuse me. Depending what, what sport was on, what games were on, that kind of thing. And uh, a bunch of it was going on while we were on the air. So you had to constantly update stuff. And uh, it was, it was a remarkable experience. Was that a summer or a winter? Oh, summer games. Summer, summer games. Sydney. Oh, so yeah. So you, you learned a lot about <clears throat> skeet shooting. <laughs> I didn't think we covered too much skeet shooting today. <laughs> you mentioned <laughs> earlier that even before you got to KMOX, we were married. How'd you meet Lois? When I was in the Army. And mm -hmm. I was at Fort Gordon, Georgia. I, I uh, enlisted because I was in graduate school at SIU in Carbondale. And I knew I was going to get drafted. So... I enlisted for that six-month thing and, and uh, six and a half years of reserve meetings. And ironically, they put me in communications. There's a shock uh, in Fort Gordon, Georgia. And a, a friend of mine was dating, a, was dating a, or was married, I guess, a woman who was living there in, in Augusta, Georgia. We were at Fort Gordon, which is right across the border. And he fixed me up on a blind date. And so I was near time getting out. And uh, uh, we went out and I asked her if she wanted to go out again. She said, well, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she, she thought I was, I didn't talk much. Somebody put it that way. She thought I was either stuck up or stupid. I'm not sure which, but I'll make this short. But we had a poaching stamp romance for a couple of years, writing letters and phone calls and stuff. And finally I went down to visit her in North Carolina. She lived in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, then all of a sudden she shows up in St. Louis. <laughs> I said, well, I guess this is pretty serious. She said, well, you said to me, if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen in St. Louis. It's I've got the letter right here. <laughs> it's not going to happen in Kenton, North Carolina. 
So anyway, we eventually got married and, and uh, two boys. And, and uh, unfortunately, our oldest one, as you probably remember, died uh, last January, a year ago, of cancer, David. Uh, David was 55, I guess. Um, he was... Uh, he was, he was one of these kids who were very smart, but a bad student. And out of high school, he went in the Army. Well, he was in the Army for like 10 years and uh, uh, learned, learned to speak fluid German in Germany, married a German girl. And uh, <clears throat> it's a long story, but they pumped out three pretty quick. And when he got out of the Army, he came back to St. Louis. She decided she didn't like him or the United States of America and took the kids back to Europe. It was a tough time for a long time because he didn't see his own kids for almost 10 years. Eventually that was all worked out. So when he got out of the army, he went into police work, obviously, because he was an MP in the army. And he was in Pueblo, Colorado and met a girl out there that he married and who saved his life really out of the divorce. And uh, uh, about two years ago, I guess he called me one day and said, dad, I've got cancer. They tell me it's terminal. Hmm. And they gave him three months. He lived 13, but boy, it's tough when you, when you, gotta, when you have to bury a child. It's, uh, it's the most difficult thing we ever did, but we had, you know, we had no control over it. But we went back and forth to Pueblo, Colorado many times, that long drive through Kansas. Kansas never ends when you no, drive. No, it does not. It never ends. Uh, so anyway, uh, our other son, Jeff. Uh, hey, before we move on to Jeff, and obviously he's got some unbelievable life accomplishments as well. I did read a touching story about David. He got to see the blues win the cup. Absolutely. He, he, he said he was the biggest blues fan in Colorado. And, and I know that he was, we used to talk about it all the time. Well, when I was doing games, when I was younger, when they were younger, they would go to the games with me, sit in the press box, sit in the broadcast booth with me. And so you know, that I think made David a huge blues fan. But yeah, uh, just a few months before he died, uh, he, 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 he bought that NHL package so he could see all the Blues games in, in Colorado. And uh, he was a very well-known cop because he was a resource officer in the biggest high school out there for 10, 11 years. So all those kids that went through there knew him and many of them liked him. So when they, then they grew up in other jobs, they'd see him. And, and so he was very well-known, let me put it that way. And it turned out to be a big story in Pueblo. They, there's still a daily newspaper there. And it was a front page story on him uh, with, that, with that situation. With, and they sent a reporter to his house, watched the game with him. They took video and did a podcast and did a front page story on David watching the Blues win the Stanley Cup. It, it was very touching. You know, and Ron, you brought it up. So I don't mean to pry. When last we spoke, it's because you're a lecturer at my church. Yeah. And that would tend for me to think you're spiritual or in touch with your spirituality. When you lose a son, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I remember going to our pastor and father Chris at the time and saying, I'm married at God. I'm, I'm mad at God. Lois and I both said, we're mad at God. And he said, God has big shoulders. He can handle it. He can handle it. You being mad, and we talked at length about it. Uh, you, it's you never, you never really accept it. The fact that your son is dying or going to die, but you have no choice. You have no choice in the matter, and you just have to try to remember the good times and the good moments and the special times with him 
And that kind of gets you past it, I guess. I'm, I still think about him every day. In fact, the screensaver on the computer I'm talking to you has his picture. And uh, I, talk to him, I talk to him every morning. So you never really get over it, but you have no choice. Life is, goes on. You can't, you can't sit there and, and close the door to, to the world and to life. You've got to continue to live because we've got another child and we've got a bunch of grandkids and, you know, and, and, uh, and we have friends. So you have to accept for what it is. And you hope, you hope that he's up there dancing around with, I told him, I did the eulogy at his funeral. Well, there were several eulogies. <clears throat> One thing I said was, you know, David, when he got to Heaven's Gate, he said, looked around and said, there's got to be a hockey rink up here. It's a pretty big place. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets to the hockey rink and said, hope he wouldn't meet any Blackhawk fans. And then he said, no, no, Blackhawk fans wouldn't be in heaven. <laughs> well, and doing what you do, you got to be on the radio the next day talking about how important it is to move the runner over from second. That's, that's very true. And when my dad died, I did a blues game the night of his funeral because I knew that he would want me to do that. He would not want me to sit around and, and sulk. So, you know, life goes on. And I've, I've learned over the years not to worry about stuff I can't control anymore. All right, let's brag on the uh, – it's Jeff, correct? It's Jeff. He's like a real-life maverick from Top Gun. No doubt. He uh, got a – uh, went to Naval Academy in Annapolis. And uh, which was incredible experience because he went there. He was a great soccer player, uh, high school player. And he went there thinking he's going to be a soccer star at Annapolis. But Jeff had played all over Europe twice by the time he was 17 years old on a select team. So he was, he was really good. And I won't bore you with a long story, but he turned out not to be a, a hockey a soccer star his freshman year. <laughs> but uh, he said it was, he hated the place, but it was a great place to be from because it opened up so many opportunities in his life. We'd go up every fall for soccer games. We always tried to make the Army-Navy game in soccer, which was the same intensity as the football game, except on a smaller scale. But there would be bands there, cheerleaders. The place would be packed. Jeff scored the winning goal as a junior in the Army-Navy game. And I'm trying to take pictures. I got tears running. <laughs> and one final story about that. Uh, his senior year, he had knee surgery, and 16 days after the knee surgery, he was going to play in the Army game, arthroscopic surgery, and it was at West Point. And I told my wife, I did a Missouri football game at West Point one time. you got to see this place. So we decided to go to West Point for Jeff's last soccer game at Annapolis. And uh, we got up there. It was so foggy, you couldn't see the other side of the soccer field. I mean, she didn't see any of West Point, which was spectacular in good weather. But... Uh, yeah, he had quite a, he had a very good soccer career there. And then I remember his junior year at Annapolis, they have a career night where the guys or the gals uh, submit a, what they would like to do, not know what they're going to do, but what they would like to do. We, we, Jeff and I were very close. I would, he, when he was a freshman, I thought he was going to be in the back porch the next day. I mean, it was that difficult. And uh, he, so we would talk a lot on the phone. But I said, what do you think you might want to do? He said, I think I'd like to fly. I said, where did that come from? <laughs> but he said, I think that's what I'd like to do. So he was fortunate when he graduated. They needed a lot of pilots. They needed a lot of billets to, to flight school. And he did. And it's a long, long, long story. But uh, he, we went down to Pensacola for his winging. And uh, 
the attrition rate at this flight school or the, this program is huge. So many of the guys don't make it, you know. And so we were in this chapel for the winging. There were like 12 kids that had survived all this training. And an admiral came in and said, I just want to, want to tell the parents, these are the best of the very best. Well, there's more tears among parents at that point. So he, he didn't know what he was going to get. He could get helicopters, he could get fixed wing, he could get anything. And uh, he called me one day, he said, Dad, I got jets. Nice. So he decided to, to uh, Norfolk and uh, the F-14 Tomcat, the plane in the movie Top Gun. And uh, he wound up with about 300 carrier landings and a bunch of missions over Iraq. He sent me a picture one time of, the, of Saddam Hussein's castle on a mountaintop in northern Iraq. He said, how did you do that? He said, Dad with a camera <laughs> said, but, but you were flying the fighter he said i know he said we were told to stay ten thousand feet above it he said we blew right over the top of that son of a gun trying to blow windows out of the place and uh, so but the final thing i'll say about it is uh, he went to top gun and only like two percent of the of the pilots navy pilots get to go to top gun so he was that good he said i thought i thought the tr the flight training was difficult every day they'd go up and fight literally fight the best fighter pilots in the world. It was like a video game with $80 million airplanes. So we had two sea tours. We got a call at one o'clock in the morning one time and saying, your son is ditched at sea hmm. and rescued, but we don't know what his condition is. So all night long, we didn't know what was going on, except he was alive. And I'll make a long story very short, but there's an island off the coast of California called San Clemente. It's not the one that we think about. This is an this is an uninhabited island that the Navy and the Marines use it for whatever they use it for. What the Navy uses it to practice carrier landings, touch and goes out there. And a long story very short, he did like four or five of those, pulled up to 5,000 feet and felt an engine. Well, he had fire lights on the, on the, in a plane, an engine in trouble. Turns out the engine exploded and uh, he had to make the decision. You can fly that plane on one engine, but he had to make the decision to get out or not. And I had long conversations with him. I wanted to write a book about it because when he told me this whole story over three hours one night, I thought I was watching a movie. And, uh, it, you know, the Tomcat's a two-man plane. So a time compression, like 30 seconds, he tried, they, they can shoot a fire extinguisher into that engine. They call it a bottle. But he did that and nothing happened. It didn't change anything. So he decides we got to get out. So he told a young guy in the back seat, uh, the, the radar intercept officer, we're going to punch, we're going to punch. And they, he said, we're going to eject. So the pilot pulls the handle and the back seat goes first. And then the front seat, the front seat went first. You'd fry the guy in the back seat because it's an explosion out of there. Mm. And I could go on for an hour, but uh, he ejected and he could see it. it was a moonless night, but he could kind of see the, the water the, the plane hit the water and then he hits the water. And first thing you realize is how cold it was. Right. Turns out it was 61 degrees in the Pacific and he thought he was going to die. He was uh, able to broadcast a mayday before he ejected, but had no idea if anybody heard him. Part of their survival equipment they were on their flight suit is a little radio with a transponder on it, sends out a signal. And there's a voice channel there. He got on the voice channel, couldn't raise anybody. So he didn't know. I don't know how long he was in the water. He, uh, he told me one time he wasn't sure either, but all of a sudden he hears a chopper overhead. 
and it was an air sea rescue helicopter flying from a ship back to San Diego that heard the mayday and to go over and found it and found the guy in the back seat. And uh, uh, he tells a story about th this crew had never done a live at sea rescue before. They've done many practice ones, but never the real real time thing. So they had an argument in the back of the chapter as who was gonna dive, because they all wanted to do it. Hmm. A diver in the water, he swims over to him, tries to get to him, heavy seas, like 10 foot seas, had trouble getting to him. And part of the survival equipment is a little raft that you can get into in, in a fetal position that comes out of your seat. Well, they finally got to him. He said, they hooked me up in a harness. They were pulling me up into the chopper and they pulled me underwater because the, the chopper was going like this. They got him in the helicopter. He was shivering uncontrollably. They covered him with blankets yeah. and got him. And then they found the, the backseat guy too. And um, when he got back to, the, when they got to the hospital in San Diego, the doctors there told him he had about a half hour left. Hypothermia would have killed him because the water was so cold. He's lived with that. And in fact, Dave, it's funny. I had a long conversation with him yesterday hmm. as he was uh, walking and uh, the subject came up. I said, do you think about that a lot? He said that every time I get cold, I think I'm back in that water. Ooh, scary. And how many children does he have? He's got uh, two. He's got okay. a daughter who just started uh, medical school at UMKC. She did her pre-med at Creighton. He's got a son who's a sophomore at Truman. Very cool. Lots of probably better questions I should ask you following up that story, but this is one I thought I saw you have enjoyment talking about. Who is Harry Weber? I've had conversations with him about Harry. He's done all those statues at, 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 at Bush Stadium. He's done statues all over the country, including one of Bobby Orr in the Boston Garden. Hmm. Uh, brilliant guy. And uh, I've just had conversations about how he does it. And he's got people that help him, of course. But interesting man, interesting man. He's getting old like the rest of us, but uh, he's, he's terrific. Going to talk a little bit about the Camo X days. Had Randy Carricker on. Had a couple other guys on. Do you happen to have a favorite Jack Buck story? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Uh, several of them, I guess. I Jack and I became very good friends, as it turned out, because I wound up replacing him as sports director there. Although when Highland called me and said, you got to take over this department, I said, sports director? He said, no, Jack's got that title. He'll always have that title. Make up another one. So it was manager of sports operations. But Jack would come in during the, when he was still doing games. And, and he would come in at 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, sit in the sports office and regale us with stories. Just all work would stop. You know, he, there'd be two or three of us in there. And he, we'd just have, have a ball. Then he'd pick up the phone and call Whitey. And for some reason, bucket bat, he recorded on the phone. I don't know why he did it. But it's a little different now than it was then. <coughs> Whitey, Jack here, you know. And, and they would do, they would do the bucket back show. We had a young intern who was a klutz. And when Jack finished the story, the young intern tried to take the reel of tape off the recorder and dropped it and went rolling down the hallway. And, but but I, on the negative side, I remember one time Jack coming in, what people don't know, and I hope I, I'm going to have to be guarded what I say here. He and Mike didn't get along very well most of the time. And he came in and, and uh, he and Mike didn't speak to each other for weeks at a time, even on the air, to the point that they had to have a meeting 
with KML Exit with the Burry, with Mike Rorty and Bob Highland and, and with Mike and Jen. You guys got to get along on the air. But Jack came in one day and used profanity that he, I rarely heard him use about his relationship with uh, with Big Mike. But Jack was, I would, you know, when he, when, when he was just really late in life, I'd call him about, what Jack, what do you think I should do about this? Whatever you want to do, big boy, just do it. You know, you're doing a good job. And I say, Jack, can you be on the air tonight? Sure, just tell me what time. He was an incredibly smart guy. You know, he's a Phi Beta Capital, Ohio State, when he was in college. He could have done anything he wanted to do. He could have been a banker. He could have been a history professor. He could have been a, a, an executive of some company, but he loved doing sports. And that's how it all started. Man. We got a started. funny Harry Carey story. Oh, let me tell you, Harry Carey. I was the only guy to interview Harry the day he got fired. Okay. With the slit spear, right? No, we had rumors that they were going to not renew his contract. Channel 5 sent me to the brewery. And I was standing outside the meeting of the marketing committee. The elevator doors opened. And it was Al Fleischman. Al Fleischman was the top PR guy, Fleischman Hilliard. Mm -hmm. And he was Gussie's left-hand and right-hand man. He controlled everything Gussie said. The doors opened. He said, son, what are you doing here? And I said, well, Mr. Fleischman, we understand that there was going to be a decision made on, on Mike Shannon. Well, if a decision is ever made, it'll be announced at the appropriate time. 30 minutes later, it was on KMOX because Fleischman and Highland were, were good friends. So they sent me looking for Mike, I mean, for, uh, for uh, Harry. Harry. And uh, we knew some of his watering holes. And I found him at Bush's Grove about three in the afternoon. And Harry had had a few by that time and a couple of buddies with him. And I said, Harry, will you do an interview? Yeah, damn right, I will. And I brought the photographer and the cameraman in, and we set up the lights and stuff. And he was holding a slit scan right here. And I said, Harry, will you put the can down? He said, I will do the interview if I put the can down. And okay. So we did this interview, and it was lethal. It was full of fire. I mean, he was critical of the brewery and it was Gussie. And I mean, it was, it was, it was really something. So we were still filming those days, believe it or not. It was late in the life of film before we went to ENG or video. And a guy, the photographer's name was Dick Deacon. He drove like crazy back down Highway 40 to get to Channel 5 and to get the film in the lab. Lab time was like 45 minutes. It was 16 millimeter uh, striped film, sound striped film. And I remember standing back in projection when they handed it to me. And I said on the intercom to the producer in the control room, what do you want to do with this? It was like 618, something like that. He said, rack it up and roll it from the top. Because it was a huge story. Harry was bigger than the team in those days. And we were the only ones that had the interview. I was the only guy that found him. So we put it on the projector. They played about eight or nine minutes of this thing. And the six o'clock news. Oh, my God. I mean, that's unusual. 635, the phone rings in the sports office at Channel 5. It's Al Fleischman. He said, son, I saw that interview. He said, do you have a, any idea how much money Anheuser-Busch spends on Channel 5? I said, no, sir. He said, I suggest you find out. And I also suggest you don't use that interview again at 10 o'clock. Whoa, it's bigger than I was. So we called the general manager at home, Jay Randolph, and I was there. And his name was Ray Karpowitz. He, he just died recently. And Ray was not the strongest guy. But, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He, Alf Leisman called. I said, yeah, boss. And he said, we shouldn't use it again. He said, well, I think we have to, don't you? I said, absolutely, we have to. <laughs> and you cover the slit scan. Well, in those days, in film, you couldn't. Today, you could turn it into a Budweiser right. can, you know, in, a, in 30 seconds or so. 
He said, well, edit as best you can. Well, you couldn't edit that out, believe me. So couldn't they, take the razor out and yeah, piece it all no, together. No, couldn't do that. <laughs> they, play, they played it again at 10. In those days, we had a half-hour newscast at midnight. They played it again at midnight and played it the next day. And for a long time, my name was um, taken in vain at Pestalozzi Street because I did the Harry Carey interview. And I used to see Harry and uh, when he was doing the Cubs, I'd go in the booth and say hello to him. He said, I made you famous. I said, no, Harry, you made me infamous, man, <laughs> with that interview. But it was, the Schlitzkamp story was in his book. Uh, but uh, that was, that was Harry. That was Harry. You also had some personal time touching moments with Muhammad Ali. I am jealous. I did. I did. I one of the rare people that had a lot, had some one-on-ones with him. Uh, quickly, the, the, it started, there was Take a- Take your time. There was a black police captain in St. Louis named Jim Reddick. And he had befriended Ali when he was Cassius Clay because Reddick was a big boxing fan. And I don't know how that friendship started, but it did. But anytime Clay or Ali would come through St. Louis, he would stop by and see Jim Reddick in one of the police stations. And so Reddick called me and said, the champ's going to be in town tomorrow morning if you want to be here. I was the only media guy he called because I guess he liked me. So I'd go with a camera crew and we'd sit down and hilarious, absolutely hilarious interviews. Before we turned the camera on, we just had conversations. But but someone early on in, in Ali's career told him you gotta have a stick. And his stick was his outrageous talking and poems and, and things like that. So he turned the camera and goes into his act. And uh, but I remember one time. <clears throat> he had come back after he refused to go to the draft. So he had been out of boxing for a while. And <clears throat> he said, champ, it looks to me like you're, you're, you're a lot slower these days. Slow. He said, I'll hit you before God gets the news. And then he was going to fight a guy named Chuck Wepner, who was called the Bayonne bleeder from, from Bayonne, New Jersey, because he could bleed a lot when you hit him. And he, <laughs> so he stood up and, and went through his whole routine of what he was going to do to, uh, to, to uh, Chuck Wepner. Another time, I had done the 10 o'clock news at Channel 5, and the, I don't know why I did it, but the phone rang about 20 to 11 as I'm walking out of the office, and I decided to pick it up. And the caller said, I just want to tell you that Muhammad Ali is going to be in town tomorrow morning. I said, what? What for? He said he's going to lead a hunger march with Dick Gregory, the activist comedian, and uh, maybe you should be there. I said, who is this? He said, I can't tell you. You can't tell me who you are? He said, no, but you should probably be there. Well, I didn't know it was bogus or not. So I left a message with the assignment desk on Saturday morning. I said, this may not happen, but you can get me a camera crew at 10 o'clock. And it was an address on Page Avenue, I think. Uh, you know, it's Ali is supposed to be there. So I got my Jeff and David up. They were like eight and nine, something like that, I guess. And uh, come with me. Where are we going? I said, just come with me. So we drove to this address on Page, I think it was Page Avenue. And there were two people standing in this vacant lot in uh, ankle deep weeds, Dick Gregory and Muhammad Ali. So we get out and I go over and I reintroduce myself to Ali and, and here's the kids, he shadow boxed with them and he signed an autograph for him. And pretty soon the police started coming because it was legitimate march. And uh, all, all kinds of people. I remember there was a bi-state bus stopped and the driver got off and said, that's Muhammad Ali. He got back on the bus and drove off. But so my camera crew showed up and I said, uh, champ, will you talk to me? I'll only talk about the hungry people of the world. 
I said, fine, because I knew I could get him going. I, I just knew I could. So I let him talk about the hungry people of the world. And he was going to fight a Japanese wrestler, a sumo wrestler. Antonio Inoki was the guy's name. Because he needed money. Ali needed money. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was going to be an exhibition. Kind of thing. I said, champ, what are you doing? This guy weighs 450 pounds. He's going to kill you. He said, who are you, the local Howard Cosell? I said, well, maybe I am. So we went on, on with this interview about what he was going to do to this 450-pound sumo wrestler and how he was going to get beat up. Finally, at the end, he said, I like your show and I like your style, but your pay is so cheap, I won't be back for a while. <laughs> he had to rhyme everything. But, uh, but I covered this fight in Las Vegas where Leon Spinks beat him mm-hmm. to a championship. Mm-hmm. Spinks was a just out of the Marines, he had only had seven or eight fights, and Ali had nobody to fight. So he thought this ex-Marine would create some uh, some gate and some interest. So I went out three or four days before the fight and uh, basically covered Spinks because he was the St. Louis kid. We saw him run 25 minutes in weighted combat boots. He jumped rope for 20 minutes, and he was a, he was a, a rock, but he was not very smart. Okay, let me put it that way. And uh, he was a brawler. He wasn't a good boxer. And uh, Bob, Bob Arum was a was a, a producer of the fight. And Bob Arum invited me and three or four other guys into his hotel suite after one of the workouts for a beer or two and talk about the fight. And I said, Mr. Arum, you know, Leon probably won't, but he could win this fight, this title. Get him some teeth. Oh. He said, oh, we do. He loses them. I said, what? He loses his false teeth, takes them out, doesn't remember where they are. You couldn't hardly understand him. Sells them. Yeah, but but he beat he right. beat Ali in 12 rounds. And uh it was a it was a pretty good fight. Uh, Ali was not ready for him. He was not in great shape. Uh he didn't take him seriously. He thought it was just another payday. But the thing that impressed me about Ali had like 40 people around him with him to come, this entourage. They all had their hands out. They all got money. They all got paid. That's why he had to continue to fight because he needed the money. But uh, we, so we interviewed him after that fight too. And he was shocked that Spinks was that good. Now, Leon was just a brawler. His brother, Michael Spinks, was a great fighter. And Michael won the light heavyweight championship and then the heavyweight championship. I covered that fight in Atlantic City when Mike Tyson beat him in the first round. Took about a minute. You know, the funny thing is, they had this fight in a big old convention center in Atlantic City. Looked like the the old Keel Auditorium on Hormones. It was huge. So (laughs) they put media people like me way at the top. I was sitting next to Evander Holyfield, as it turns out, because he was up there too. Now, I didn't know much about him at the time. But anyway, we were so far away from the ring, <coughs> we couldn't see much. <coughs> Excuse me. So I watched the preliminary fights, and I wanted to stay and watch the introduction for Spinks and, and, and uh, Tyson. And then I was going to go down and watch the fight in the media room where I could actually see it. Well, Tyson knocked Spinks out when I was on the way down. <laughs> I never saw the, the knockout in real time. I never admitted that on the air. I saw it 10 times, you know, right after that on video. But uh, but uh, I was surprised that, that Bob Heinle let me cover those things because that was kind of out of the ordinary. But uh, I convinced him that there was a lot of interest in it because it was the St. Louis kids who both won gold medals in the Montreal Olympics. Well, Ron, I have really enjoyed this. You've been engaging 
Not that I should have thought that maybe you wouldn't be, but I've enjoyed the stories. I talk too much, though. No, no. More of you and less of me is always a good thing. So as we get ready to do a St. Louis 7, for people who like this podcast, maybe you want to check out other ones. OT with Oliver is the podcast channel as well as the YouTube channel. Ron, you're the first guest I've had who owns a 1982 World Series championship ring. That's exactly right. I was shocked when the Cardinals gave me gave that to me. Uh, but I did the, the dugout show before every Cardinal telecast on Channel 5. And I did some games. I would do seven or eight games a year when Jay Randolph would have conflicts because Jay was doing football with NBC. So I, I remember the very first game I did. Uh, I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was going to do a Cardinal game at Wrigley Field against the Cubs. I was on the bus going to the ballpark. Jack Buck was sitting right in front of me. He turned around and said, you're doing a game today, kid? I said, well, yes, sir. He said, most guys start in the minors. <laughs> I don't know if he was joking or if he was, if he was zinging me. Jack was easy to work with, though. Do you ever wear it? Oh, once in a while. I still have it. Yeah. Fine, I wore it last week. My wife wants me to wear it all the time. Sure. I don't wear it that much. But I do wear it when I go to speaking engagements, things like this. I like to show it to people because it's pretty unusual to, to get one. In those days, it was. They didn't give one to everybody who ever thought about working for the team. So I was really pleased. They gave it to me on opening day the following season. And I, I got a form letter about three days before Christmas after the World Series said, send us your ring size. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to get a World Series ring. After you get the second shot, what's the first thing you're going to do? Oh, come back home. <laughs> Hope it doesn't hurt too much. We have a, we have a trip planned in April to, to our favorite place, the Outer Banks in North Carolina. That's Trip of Sand and Six Out in the Atlantic. Sand dunes and sea oats and neat places to stay and all that. So I told my wife, we're not going if we don't get the second shot. Well, we're going to get it now. So so that's probably the next thing we'll do is is actually take the trip. Look forward to it. See you next time at CPOP. I'll be there. Hope you had a good time. Thanks. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. It was fun. And another one for the books. Video of this conversation is on YouTube channel O2 with Oliver. You can also catch Ron St. Louis 7 this Tuesday, where Ron touts the great work of the Knights of Columbus and answers seven St. Louis-specific questions. Let's do it again this Thursday, as we do. Thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.